0: It's Monday, April 3rd, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. We're taking a break this week, but we wanted to play you one of our favorite episodes of all time. And in fact, it features one of my favorite science writers of all time, Mary Roach. Mary Roach's book, Gulp, is both disgusting and fascinating and infinitely interesting. I had the pleasure of interviewing her on our very first season of Inquiring Minds. She blows my mind and makes me laugh, and I hope you'll have the same reaction. But if you'd prefer not to listen to an old episode, we're also including the first episode of my new podcast in the feed. It's called Cadence, and it explores what music tells us about our minds. And if you like that episode, there are three more waiting for you on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's my interview with Mary Roach. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Mary Roach. Thank you. Your most recent book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, has just been released in paperback. And in it, you follow the flow of food uh, from our sense of smell to taste and so on all the way to the other end. Now, this is quite the grand journey, but because we're somewhat pressed for time in this interview, I wanted to jump right into the deep end, as it were.
1: The below the waist end.
0: Exactly. <laughs> One thing that has become abundantly clear in the last few years is that we're not alone in our intestines; that we share the tract with many other species, and in fact depend on them to stay alive. So, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of our bacterial buddies. So, how does our intestine actually get colonized in the first place? What do they do for us, and what happens if they don't do what they're supposed to?
1: Well, we get them. Apparently, we get them at birth, going through the uh, the birth canal, which is a lovely way. Of saying vagina, uh, so we get an inoculation that way, which is uh, uh, an interesting. Has interesting to think about when you uh, think about C sections and how you know how how then do we get bacteria that way? But anyway, uh, uh, a large portion of them come from mom, from you know from the get go, and you uh, the the they are mostly the vast majority of them are in the large intestine, the colon, and and that they are breaking down the material that didn't get absorbed on the upper, you know, the, 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 most of the absorption happens in the small intestine. It's got these lovely little fingers that increase the surface area and they're just absorbing and absorbing and absorbing the things that can't be absorbed that haven't been broken down that land in the colon. Those are, uh, worked on by bacteria and they're, they're, they're further broken down. And, uh, but a lot of the stuff, I mean, they, it's beneficial for them too. It's, uh, that we deliver them, uh, all the food that they don't get. They basically, they get our leftovers, the things that we're not going to use, that we can't absorb, goes on down to these guys in the colon who are um, breaking them down, creating some nutrients down there. And uh, there's the, the statistic that blows my mind that I've heard is that for every one cell of you, there are nine of them. So, as one of the gastroenterologists said to me, it's kind of a philosophical question of who owns whom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah it's kind of amazing to think about um but i want to actually just get back to your very first comment which is that you know we get these buddies from mom so what happens in in c sections i've actually heard that women who get c sections might consider you know kind of like wiping vaginal fluid on the face of their newborn baby to sort of colonize them do you think that would work does anybody do that
1: i don't know if that works that's an interesting i mean it makes a certain amount of uh intuitive sense that you you'd want to mimic what happens in the birth canal uh, but it but there's so many c-sections and people uh, people have had c-sections go on to be able to you know to have a normal functioning adult life so I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure if anybody knows I mean it seems like can't hurt might help uh, so why not it is a, a kind of an odd thing to I guess picture doing with a baby but uh, <laughs> the, that's uh, uh, sure. I don't know. I don't know of any studies on it is what I'm saying that I don't know exactly um, if anybody's looked at whether it that helps.
0: Or has anybody looked at the, the sort of the future of those babies? Do babies with C-sections tend to have more gastrointestinal problems, Um, you know, going forward?
1: I seem to recall reading something about, yeah, that there's there's some higher percentage of some gastrointestinal disorders. I didn't cover it in the book, so I'm not sure which gastrointestinal issues were higher in c-section babies but I seem to recall hearing that but since I'm not an authority on that I probably shouldn't mouth off about it um but there but it is they say that you can um you can trace family trees through gut bacteria that, that it is that um, that you know that you are getting it from the parent and and, and you, you take antibiotics you wipe them out they tend to come back the same populations come back and it's fairly consistent over time in which is kind of amazing.
0: That is kind of amazing, especially because, you know, we we are told that we should eat probiotics in order to colonize our guts. Yeah. Um, And yet so so you'd think then that you whatever you ingest in the probiotic is what gets colonized. Um, But that doesn't seem to be be the case.
1: Yeah, with with probiotics. uh, I mean, the ultimate probiotic is a fecal transplant. And with a fecal transplant, and this is done with people who have a, a chronic infection called C difficile which can be very difficult to get rid of and um, so you take the the, the he- a healthy person's microbiome that is to say uh, a dose of feces and it's processed, when i was there uh, at the lab uh, using an oster blender and some distilled water and it's put in with a colonoscope and a, it's what I'm, what i'm getting at here is it's a lot of material because you are trying to overwhelm a huge popul- you're, you're you're creating like world war in the colon this you know sudden invasion of somebody else's uh bacteria which is taking over your own you typically the person's been given antibiotics to you know, create a kind of a clean slate for the new for the newcomers to uh, move into. But it is um, the point I was going to make is that probiotics, uh, if it's just a little capsule or or a little bit at a time, some of it. The, the analogy somebody gave to me was it's like trying to raise the sea level with a teacup. So you really need uh, a tremendous number coming in to make a difference in, in the population. I mean, think of it as a yeah, as a it's kind of like a combination of. Immigration and World War—you have this population coming in, and if whether or not they'll be successful in in colonizing depends on uh, what happens with the the folks that are already there. So it is um, so probiotics. You know, again, it's a, a can't hurt, might help situation, but there's a lot of probiotic products that really haven't been tested in humans that are su- and there are also such small amounts that. You have to wonder how much difference it would make, but in there are also cases like in the vagina for yeast infections. You know, lactobacillus has been shown to help, and there are definitely um, cases of you know bacteria being a, a treatment for uh, various imbalances of a microbiome.
0: So I never thought I'd actually say these words, but I'm glad that you brought up fecal transplants because they were something that I was particularly interested in talking to you a little bit about. And I suppose it's too late now, but I did want to give our listeners a bit of a trigger warning. Um, Some of the things we are discussing today (laughs) are gross. (laughs) And this probably takes the cake, uh, if I could put that uh, metaphor in there. So tell me a little bit more about fecal transplants, uh, what they're mainly for, and why it seems that we never hear about them until we read about them in your book.
1: They are right now mainly used for a particular infection in the colon, this bacteria C. difficile, which uh, doesn't always respond to antibiotics, and uh, the antibiotics tend to wipe out all the bacteria bacteria but the C. diff, so the C. diff actually becomes stronger uh, and has a, you know, gains a foothold and comes back with a vengeance. So if, it, if the antibiotics don't wipe it out, then it, each successive time it's, you use antibiotics, it becomes harder and harder and, this, and, and less and less likely to succeed. So the treatment then is just to just take a healthy person's intestinal bacteria and you're taking it in the form of their waste. Um, which is the, just the simplest way to do it, and just introducing it uh, using the same device you would use to do a colonoscopy. It has a little plunger attachment. You can also go through the mouth, which is even a little more distasteful, if you can imagine, <laughs> and doing it through the back door. But you can like, like go down through with an endoscope through the stomach and, and go in that way. But one way or the other, you've got to introduce a large amount of material, and you're going to overwhelm the bad guys with good guys. And this has been done, uh, the uh, agriculture community, uh, particularly, you know, dairy farmers, uh, they've known with cows, if there's something, if the the cow has some sort of intestinal distress, you just throw a bit of somebody else's poop in there and it usually clears it right up. So uh, farmers have known about fecal transplants for a long time. And uh, the fecal transplants, the bacteria therapy is the sort of the tidier term for it that I also hear, uh, bacteria therapy has, uh, in the time since I started working on this book, I don't know, four years or so ago, it's gone from being something when I say, oh, I'm researching fecal transplants. I get this shock and horror reaction. And now people are like, oh yeah, fecal transplants. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, I heard about that. So the the acceptance of it has really come around partly just because there's been enough coverage that people are now no longer it's not something that's novel and upsetting in the same way that it was and also because there've been a couple of large studies in prominent journals saying this has like a 90 something percent cure rate it's very effective it's cheap you know crap, crap is cheap there's not you know, there's no it's not like a $30,000 a month pharmaceutical treatment it's it's really simple and cheap uh, or it should be. I'm sure there are people who are trying to uh, mark up the price and, and profit off of it. So it's a combination of those factors. It's it's gained a lot of acceptance, and I think it'll there'll be people uh, there'll be researchers trying it out for irritable bowel disease or or inflammatory bowel disease, all, all manner of there's there's uh, earwax transplants have been done, and I think there's some someone talking about looking at gum bacteria and maybe, uh, because there's a lot of difference, in depending on what bacteria you have in your mouth, you may be more or or less prone to gum disease. So a uh, bacterial transplant in the mouth, or you could just make out with somebody new, I guess, get (laughs) an infusion of new bacteria, hopefully better that way.
0: Yeah, that's the first uh, positive argument for making out with strangers that I've heard in a long time.
1: (laughs) You do kind of (laughs) want to talk to their dentist first to see how their gums are. Uh, yeah, it's like the ultimate recycling program. Um, but I, <laughs> I wanted to
0: read one quote from your book that really made me sit up and and listen, as it were. Changing people's bacteria is turning out to be more a more effective strategy for treatment and prevention of disease than changing their diet. It's kind of an amazing statement.
1: Yes. Well, it's it's turning it's 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 turning out. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of research being done on the microbiome, not just in the gut, but a lot of it in the gut. And, you know, it used to be that you would look at, that researchers would look at the foods that you eat as, you know, the potential for curing or preventing disease. And now it's turning out that it's the things that that food is broken down into. It's the constituent components that may make the difference. And that's also true with drugs. The way, you know, you take some kind of a a drug, the bacteria are going to affect that as well. So, so the efficacy of drugs may also depend on what bacteria you know what what colonies and what types of bacteria you have in your gut so it's just it's just everything's become a a measure more complex and it's both very very promising and also very complicated and so it, and really right now just in the infancy but i think in the next 25 years there'll be uh there'll be a lot more conditions other than c diff infection that will be treated this way so it kind of begs the question that
0: now that we're getting more comfortable with having these bacteria and, and, and other friends in our guts, why it is that people would sort of gravitate towards things like enemas and cleanses in order to make themselves feel better? So, you know, the argument there, of course, is they're getting getting rid of toxins, but c- certainly they're probably getting rid of some of these good bacteria as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no. And, and the, the toxin issue, I mean... You know, enemas and and cleanses have been around for hundreds of years, and it makes intuitive sense that, you know, crap, shit is this stuff that is off-putting, it's smelly, it's revolting, we want to stay away from it, there are pathogens in it. So we tend to make the leap and think, the less time I'm exposed to this in my body, the healthier I'll be. So there have been um, not just enemas and cleanses, but there were surgeons actually removing the colon the large intestine, taking it entirely out to speed things through, basically creating chronic diarrhea in the hopes that you'd lower your exposure to these toxins. Uh, and there was a study that is uh, it's kind of an unusual and creepy study, but it, there, was a, there was a guy in order to, to refute this, and this was in, the I think, the early 1900s. In order, in order to refute this, to debunk it, he did this experiment where he constipated dogs by closing <laughs> closing up the anus basically and then um, the theory would be if they're now absorbing all these toxins he then he then took blood samples and then put it in other dogs trying to see do you create symptoms etc and couldn't find any of these symptoms and the other the other fun <laughs> the other fun debunking study was they um, artificially constipated somebody with kind of wadding with sort of material to mimic constipation and then, But it wasn't. There were no toxins in it, and then they remove this material, and the person feels instantly relieved. Well, there wasn't any toxins, so the relief had to do more with the chronic presence of backed-up material. That it was sort of a physiological effect, and not because if you think about it, if if an enema brings instant relief, well, then it wasn't a chemical process of blood poisoning, because that wouldn't clear up instantly the moment you flush the stuff out. So there, there's a number of studies that have really poked holes in this whole theory of uh, auto-intoxication, of self-poisoning through toxins.
0: So it kind of makes, you know, there's this idea too, of course, that, um, that there's a sort of satisfaction with eliminating your own waste, right? Even in the Bristol Stool Scale. There's the there's a you know the, the the best one is where you have a sense of complete <laughs> evacuation. Um, so is that really what the enema is doing? Is kind of triggering this kind of very almost mechanical response that that gives us an relief.
1: Yeah, and I think it, I think there's a psychological component uh, as well. It's just a a, a sense of being in, internally cleansed. There were lots of uh, there was lots of um devices like fountain syringes. There was like a whoopee cushion with a nozzle, nozzle that you sit down on and it would spray the stuff up inside and you'd feel cleansed from within. And I think that that some of that was was strictly psychological. So we now know that we
0: have these, you know, friends in our gut that we want to hang out with, but there are other animals that can live inside us that are not quite so, let's say, desirable, like parasites and worms, etc. In your research, what were some of the strangest ones that you came across?
1: Mm, um, There is a little tiny worm. I shouldn't even tell anyone this. But in in (laughs) sushi, sushi, it's called an anisakid. And it's this little tiny, it's this little, uh, it looks just like a piece something, like a piece of thread, you know, maybe a centimeter long at most. And But this little guy has on his head, it's called a boring tool. It's like an electrical drill on the head, and it drills through various components of the gastrointestinal system, making its way. I forget where exactly it's going now, but it's trying to get out of the stomach and head somewhere else. And often you cough up the worm, but it can create a a, a tremendous amount of havoc down there. Fortunately, most sushi that you're getting in a sushi restaurant has been frozen, and that will kill the on a socket worm. But that just the idea of having a drill on your head. And if you look at blow ups of these, it's quite alarming. <laughs> so have you stopped eating sushi? Oh, no. Oh, no, not at <laughs> all.
0: No. So there are also parasites that we're warned about that, you know, will sort of grow to extreme lengths. Were there any stories that you heard that were based on fact as opposed to fiction of incredibly long parasites?
1: Well, there were these stories for for centuries of snakes and slugs and frogs even living inside people's stomachs and intestines. Um, stomach snakes and frogs uh, were you, they would turn up in medical reputable medical journals, and it was always the story always went: I was out hiking in the country, and I drank from the stream, and I must have swallowed some larvae, and they grew, they they. Hatched inside, and I can feel. And what it was was people would have strange feelings of gurgling and movement inside them, which is normal. There's a lot of motility and things sort of shifting around and gurgling inside you. But you could imagine someone might get the idea in their head that there was something actually in there. They also used this. Um, you know, if they had if they had symptoms, say, of uh, lactose intolerance or any kind of gastrointestinal distress, they think it was the snake or the frog moving around or, or, or getting angry or, or, uh, wreaking havoc in there. So the, um, the, and they'd go to the doctor and the doctors would, uh, sometimes, uh, believe them. I mean, it was, uh, it, it, so the degree to which of the commonness of those, uh, reports were, was kind of amazing. Uh, and, and, uh, so snakes, so that's probably the biggest, uh, snakes and frogs. And there was a guy who, again, I love this. The creativity applied to debunking this. Um, one guy came, uh, There was one particular patient who claimed to have had a succession of frogs, and the doctor said, okay, let me see one of these frogs. And he cut open the frog, and he looked at what was in the frog's stomach, and of course there are some half-digested insects, which led him to realize, no, you haven't had a frog in your gut for years, because unless you're also ingesting insects to feed the frog, this frog died outside of your body. I love that. So is there
0: any evidence that any of these animals actually did exist or did get hatched into someone's stomach or is it all just been myth?
1: No, it, it, no, there isn't any evidence of that. However, um, I did spend some time thinking about, you know, I, I wanted to see, are there any creatures that could live inside the stomach of, of a predator and even uh, get revenge and prevail? Like eat their way out. Now, there, is a, there is a rumor in the herpetology community that uh, mealworms can survive and eat their way out of a lizard or frog's stomach. And I spent some time in a lab at the University of Nevada. Uh, Richard Tracy is the, the guy who set up the experiment. And we actually put an endoscope down a lizard and a frog's mouth and uh, had them eat a mealworm and or swallow it whole. In fact, we, we made sure it was an animal that would swallow it whole. And then we watched, and there was almost no activity. The animal, it, it didn't die. We pulled it back out, and it lived. But at, when it was in there, it just very quickly went still. There was no effort to eat out of the stomach. And we did this multiple times with different animals, and it was an interesting <laughs> afternoon. Uh, and, uh, yeah, anyway, we managed to pretty much debunk that myth. Um, mealworms like to burrow underneath things and be in the dark, and and I you know I can imagine coming along, seeing the end of a mealworm sticking out of your pet, and think and the pet is dead, and thinking it's dead, and I, I saw the mealworm coming out. You could sort of see how it might have also having watched the film Alien. I could imagine being influenced by that, where the thing comes out, and I think that made a tremendous impact on us culturally that scene where the thing that hatched inside suddenly emerges from the skin so but anyway i i know of no instance where that's been documented
0: well that's certainly a relief um and So besides the animals that we have in our bodies that are there from birth and so on, there are also times in which we put things up our rear ends, uh, like in the case of people in prison trying to smuggle in things or drug mules. And so I wanted to shift the conversation now to things we stick up our rear ends uh, and ask you a little bit to tell us a little bit about a particular prison inmate who seems to have caught your attention, whose nickname was Office Depot.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I have a chapter on the elementary canal as criminal accomplice, and um, there are two ways to do that. You either eat it, you swallow it, or you put it up the back way. And you know, there's reasons to do both. But anyway, Office Depot or OD, as he was known for short, he's someone who was uh, caught on a strip search coming into Avenal State Prison with uh, three large office binder rings and a box of staples. And I believe there were a couple of other things. And they never did get him to explain what he was doing with those uh, particular items, but he became known as uh, OD or Office Depot. And you also
0: interviewed someone who has done this. Um, tell us a little bit about what what you found out from that interview.
1: Well, I found out that it is, it's a, a, a uniquely awkward scenario to sit down with a convicted murderer and ask him about his defecatory reflex reflexes and how he manages to override those when smuggling things in and out of the prison. But he was a very uh uh a very genial guy and the other thing about hooping as it's known, putting things through the anus and up into the rectum, uh, it is so it is such an everyday practice. It's like flossing your teeth or rotating your tires. It's just not A weird. I mean, it's it's just practically okay. You got to get this in. How are you going to do it? You're going to hoop it. And you see, I watched a lot of video camera footage from the prison, from the visitors room, of people taking things from a family member or a friend and hooping it. And it's just like someone reaching back and putting a handkerchief in their pocket. You would never know unless you knew what you were looking for. What this person was doing. Their their facial expressions rarely betrayed it. Uh, it. It and so it's such a matter of fact everyday part of life in prison, that it it was actually not that strange a conversation to have, believe it or not. But surely
0: when you're first, when you first come into prison, I mean, this has got to be a skill that requires some practice. You know, you'd think the first couple times you try to hoop something. I mean, it's gotta be hard.
1: No, and the inmates, yeah, the inmates do practice. They kind of putter around the cell holding something in their rectum, they they definitely have to to get used to it. Um, and they were saying we this. I asked if you know if uh, if gay inmates uh, have sort of a leg up, <laughs> you know, if they're a little they're more practiced. And he said, oh yeah, they're often recruited because they're practiced. Uh, he said we call them vaults. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting <laughs> touch. <laughs>
0: and so the main issue here is that they have to prevent themselves from literally like pooping it out at the wrong moment. So do they do they feel the urge the entire time and learn to control it? Or do they learn to get rid of the urge?
1: They learn to uh, just push on through. And, and if, what happens though with the defecatory, the urge, the reflex, uh, there is of course a manual override. You can ignore this urge. And if you do ignore it, it your body backs off for a while and lets you kind of go about your business, finish up what you're doing. And then it will come back and tap you on the shoulder and go, oh, hey, he's still got to do this. And so the 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 time between urges gets shorter and shorter and the urge gets stronger and stronger. So you have to have quite a uh, uh, an iron will at a certain point to keep it in. And when that has been, uh, it's usually not so much in a, Smuggling in and out of prison scenario, but people who have who are drug mules who are detained on suspicion of holding narcotics, they will sometimes uh, just days go by, and I don't, I have no idea how they do that, but they hold it in, and it becomes more and more, uh, more and more difficult and more and more hard to manually override. Uh, yeah, uh, the prisoner I talked to, he said, mm, "Yeah, it finds its place." You know, he didn't really have a, a, a scientific. Explanation for how he does it. But yeah, I think it's uh, like anything else, a matter of getting used to it.
0: Yeah, well, the human body has an amazing capacity for adaptation. So I guess this is one of those examples. Yeah. But you also talk about um, how, you know, this could be a potentially very dangerous thing from the point of view of a terrorist, right? So why don't terrorists uh, run around with bombs in their rectums more often?
1: Because explosives. uh, Ten, they don't. You know, the the difference between the damage done at six inches versus a foot is significant. Uh, like I forget seventy like percent of the damage. You your own body will take seventy percent of it, uh, and you know you're a suicide bomber. I guess you don't care, but your efficacy in killing your target, sorry, is is very diminished when the when the device is if it's inside you as opposed to on a vest. So you are. Uh, and there's, there's been uh, cases where uh, it, uh, the it wasn't a, he wasn't in the rectum, but I think it was taped behind the testicles, and then it was um, behind the scrotum, and the the guy was the, the the suicide bomber was killed, and the person sitting right next to him wasn't even scratched. So it's not particularly. And the other thing, you're uh, you know you're often what's killing people is, is shrapnel, ball bearings, little scraps of metal, things that are propelled outward and then hit a wide array of people. So it's not the bomb itself, but these projectiles. So again, the body, having it inside the body would interfere with that. And also, you, you know, the detonation becomes more complicated. There's, uh, you know, if you swallow it, is the stomach acid going to interfere? It's just, it's just not a practical way to do it.
0: So yeah, it seems like that our our uh, anuses are in some way protective of, of our general society.
1: <laughs> yes, but here again reason to be thankful for your anus. There was also this there was also talk that uh, that in some cultures just taking it up the rectum was was thought to be unmanly it was you know that was that was uh, it was a gay thing to do and you would never like that was like oh no he did I it was definitely not in his rectum he definitely had it between his legs like there was a sort of a the person that I talked to thought that it was um also culturally not not the manly, not the manly way to carry your bombs.
0: (laughs) So of course, there's another thing that comes um, out of your anus that is funny, and that is a fart. Uh, So I wanted to move a little bit to talk a little bit about flatulence. And one of the most amazing stories in your book about flatulence is about the origins, perhaps of fire breathing dragons. So can you tell us about your theory uh, of how these dragons first came into our culture?
1: Sure, yeah. Well, it was actually the theory of a snake physiologist named Stephen Secor at the University of Alabama. And he was, I don't need to really explain how he got to this, but he was doing a different kind of research. But he um, realized that there's a tremendous amount of hydrogen in particular coming off of a, say, a rodent, you know, a snake swallows a rodent. It's in there a long time decomposing and it's generating a lot of gas and hydrogen at something like 10% is combustible. And he realized that if you were to say, you know, snakes, people eat snakes. And and if early man, somebody had dragged back one of these snakes that happened to be in the process of digesting a rodent and they set it down by the fire and somebody stepped on the snake, blew out the hydrogen, the fire ignited the hydrogen coming out of the snake's mouth. Well, there you have the origins, possibly, of a story of a fire-breathing serpent. So that was just a theory, uh, uh, which I loved. Uh, and um, you know, who knows whether or not it's true, but it certainly was an a- interesting idea.
0: It's a great story. And I don't know if you've read the news lately, or if you had come across this particular notion in your research, but recently, the idea of capturing cow farts to save the world has made it into the news. So you know, apparently, there's these backpacks that you can put on a cow and that captures their fart, the methane gas, which apparently, you know, is is quite uh, deleterious to our environment. And that way you can not only reduce emissions but turn those farts into usable energy.
1: H- have you heard about this kind of work? No, and that's interesting because the cow expert that I spoke to at UC Davis Agriculture School told me about this amazing mechanism um, by which uh, a cow, in fact, he was saying it's not farted out; it's belched out, and it's not even belched; it's exhaled. That they have a they have a mechanism whereby the methane is uh, re it's it, it's a routing technique where it's it, it comes back up and is exhaled quietly. You don't want to if you're a cow or an other grazing animal, you don't want to be belching loudly and giving away your position to a predator. So they they have an adaptation where they are exhaling tremendous amounts of methane. So. He, uh, my understanding from him was that it was coming out the mouth uh, rather than the rear end, but perhaps they're also emitting off the off the back end. But either way, sure, I guess <laughs> why not? It sounds like a win-win unless you're the cat. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So that brings me to another question, you know, thinking about the person who actually has to fit the backpack onto the cow. um, What was the worst dirty job that you encountered on your grand tour of the elementary canal?
1: (laughs) Um, The guy at state in the the guy in the state prison, who's checking everybody coming in. They uh, (laughs) are that like, bend over spread and cough. I forget if that's the exact sequence. But um, yeah, the that that's, you know, not really a fun, appealing job right there. Now,
0: if we have any listeners left, I wanted to end on a slightly more positive (laughs) note (laughs) Um, and talk about one of my favorite treatments that you talk about in the book. And that is the kitten treatment for someone who has an impacted bowel. So can you tell us a little (laughs) bit about this treatment?
1: Yeah, uh, there were a lot of interesting historical treatments for um, obstipation, which is obstinate constipation, uh, for everything from swallowing lead shot and then moving around a lot to kind of break things up manually with these pieces of lead shot. Uh, also, just picking up the patient, throwing him over your shoulder, and jostling him around to break things up. That was another one that I liked to picture. But the yeah, there was a. a Physician who and I and he did not explain himself, but he felt that you should uh, lie abed with a kitten pressed to your gut, a live kitten uh, for a few days. And I didn't know if that was one just sort of a way to get the person to relax, like it was an early animal therapy, like oh, you have a kitten, it'll make you relax, and you're you know, you'll, there'll be certain. Um, hormonal changes just because you're happy and you have a kitten. And you, I don't know what he was thinking, but it is there in the medical text. Uh, there it is. I don't know if it's the Lancet or the British Journal of Medicine, but there it was um, as a treatment for obstinate constipation. I have not tried it.
0: <laughs> we had a cat for a while and you know he did this kneading motion, which I... I, I... I was learned was actually when they uh, kittens do that in order to get their moms to produce milk for them. And so they have this kind of reflex of kneading. And so I guess, is that the idea that they would knead on your, you know, belly, and that would sort of get things moving?
1: I wondered if it was the kneading, yeah, or possibly some kind of just um, relaxation, something, uh, you know, that's something more touchy-feely. But I did wonder about the kneading. but it's hard to imagine that it, if you've got a real impaction in the bowel, a, a, you know, a kitten pressing up and down, it's hard, it's hard to imagine that being very efficacious.
0: Yeah, but it does <laughs> sound a lot more, um, you know, desirable than taking a laxative or an enema. So yeah, I, I, I'll definitely I try that.
1: I definitely would start with the kitten before you, you know, move on to X lax
0: Absolutely. Well, Murray Roach, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Kyle Rahala, Jonathan Worsley, Yu Shi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration and partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Want
1: the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.